Morning, everybody. So, um, uh, a show of hands for this question. Uh, usually I don't ask for a show of hands. But if you were uh, or are a charter member of Covenant, just raise your hand. Fourteen. Does that sound right? Fifteen, sixteen, give or take. So maybe a third of this class. Um, when Covenant um, started and before it was called Covenant, um, uh, I was uh, 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 I was kind of in the middle of it. Uh, many of you know uh, uh, there were a, a group of folks uh, that kind of uh, got the discussion started, and uh, one of the folks was uh, Dr. Lee Thomas. Many of you know, and I happened to practice about eight feet away from him. And uh, was interested in the things of church, and had decided to to go to church where he did, and and um, and was kind of privileged to to see things start. Uh, as I look back on what what are we twenty five, twenty six or so years, twenty eight. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I should know that it's about the same age as as some of my kids, um, but. Uh, I probably had more zeal than I did knowledge. Uh, I, I hope I've picked up a few things over the last 30 years. Um, but um, uh, one, of the, one of the things that came out of those discussions is to what to call our new church. Uh, for a while it was called the new church. Um, sounds kind of humorous at the, at, <laughs> at the moment, but um, we settled on the idea of covenant. Baptist Church. I realize now, and have realized, you know, uh, a while back, but uh, uh, certainly it's appropriate for this talk that that when we called it covenant, um, to those outside of Southern Baptist circles who were raised in different. Uh, evangelical circles, especially if you have any kind of reform leanings, the concept of a covenant Baptist church probably meant something very different than what you saw when you came to covenant. Do I see some nods? Right? Yes. Uh, trust me, there was no intent to mislead. <laughs> um, but uh, covenant theology has uh, kind of been one of the hallmarks of our Reformed brothers and sisters um, and uh, say our ARP friends, uh, our Presbyterian Church of America friends and, and many other Reformed um, uh, branches of our evangelical tree. Um, that was not what we had in mind when we called the Covenant Baptist Church. It was a much I think it was a valid reason, but I might say maybe a naive and, and maybe a, an overly simple and maybe somewhat of a crass reason. We called it Covenant Baptist Church. And that was one of the thorns in the side of some of the folks 
where they had been going to church was you had a membership out of a particular church that was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people on the roll, so to speak, who were official members, and maybe only 25% of that were regular attenders. Well, they didn't like that. So the concept was, well, we'll establish what it means to be part of this church, we'll sign a covenant, and then if you don't keep your covenant, then we'll take you off the rolls. That's why I was called Covenant Baptist Church. You know, that's the truth. And periodically, we take people off the rolls. At least we did back in the day. I don't know if we still do it, but I think we still do. So that has nothing to do with covenant theology. <laughs> um, Pastor Bobby has talked about in our, you know, maybe zeal, uh, and, and with God's hand, the covenant that we sign every anniversary actually turned out to be pretty good. And I think it's worthy of us considering every year and of signing every year. Um, so that is our kind of covenant with each other. Uh, but that's a little different than what you might hear of covenant theology if you start to read outside Baptistic circles. Um, I say all that to, to highlight that we are going to talk about covenants again today because it's arguably the greatest themes in the Bible are, are couched in covenant language, and so we're going to spend some time on that. It's taken us a while to, to, to get to this kind of mountaintop of Jeremiah, I might say, so we might as well camp out here at least a little bit. Um, so that's kind of where we are. Uh, so that's one point, uh, just to kind of clarify uh, why we're called covenant. We might call ourselves covenant for different reasons than we did 28 years ago, in any event. Um, the second thing is to, to highlight that it is important for us to know foundational things. Um, did I mention last week this survey called the State of Theology? Have you guys been exposed to what's called the State of Theology Survey? Uh, R.C. Sproul and Ligonier Ministries, a very good group of folks, partnered with Lifeway uh, to survey, and has partnered with Lifeway to survey uh, what people think about um, theology. Uh, I forget who said it. Somebody said, uh, everyone's a theologian, uh, but just some people are really bad theologians. Uh, everybody has an opinion about God, right? And how things work in the world, and we just... You know, and sometimes it's just like, hey, buddy, you just made that up. You know, that's not grounded in anything. Um, but that's, that's kind of where we are. So um, you can, I'm going to um, pull up just a few things, and you can go to thestateoftheology.com, okay? Thestateoftheology.com. And they surveyed um, uh, folks, uh, Americans. Uh, I think there's a UK version uh, that happens every so often as well. Uh, and then they divided it between, uh, or they looked at every, all of the people that they surveyed, and then they also looked at, okay, uh, that's what Americans say, but what do evangelicals say? And their defini definition of evangelical is a very good one, right? So we, uh, you can read it, but uh, I don't need to, um, to quibble with that. But... Um, Evangelicals as a group, um, which should be the more 
um, orthodox of you know of the you know there's Christianity there's Protestant Christianity there's evangelical Christianity we should be kind of in the core of of our beliefs right there's some crazy stuff so um, the concept of original sin they ask the question everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God agree or disagree um, only 65% of evangelicals agree with that. 33% think we're fine when we're born, which is not what the Bible teaches. Here's a question. This is a, an agree or disagree question. Every Christian has an obligation to join a local church. Only 36% of Americans agree with that. Only 68% of evangelicals agree with that. They think it's fine not to participate in a local body. Here's one. Here's a statement. Agree or disagree. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. Okay? 53% of Americans agree with that. Um, I forget the number, but a surprising percentage of evangelicals also agree with that. Here's a statement. Gender identity is a matter of choice. Um, 42% of Americans agree with that. 46% says the Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior doesn't apply today. Here's one. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 56% of evangelicals agree with that. More than half of people who claim to be evangelical Christians think that God's fine with Islam. So, one more. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43% of evangelicals agree with that statement. So, as you are conversing with folks, as you are talking with your kids, your grandkids, their acquaintances, you might ask some of these questions uh, because your answers might surprise you. Um, the drift is probably subtle but devastating. Uh, I don't remember the exact phrasing, but the concept that you're only a, a generation away from, from people forgetting everything. Um, so, as we think about covenants uh, today and think about the big themes of how God relates to us, um, 
it's important to, to really kind of ground yourself in some of this, um, to revisit it, to, to make sure you know what you believe, why you believe it, uh, because um, uh, these, these beliefs have ramifications, right? I mean, if you, if almost, well, what did I say, over, over half of evangelicals don't believe that Jesus is God, how do they how did they get from there to how they became a Christian in the first place? How did they get from there to why was his sacrifice adequate to forgive my sin? How does that work if he wasn't perfect? Uh, you know, it just has all these ramifications. So, so just um, check 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 that out. Uh, the uh, the state of theology dot com. All right. So let's look, we're going to land in uh, chapter 31 again, but we are in Jeremiah, and I'm going to highlight just a few verses, um, uh, like I did last week, but uh, a shorter selection. In chapter 29, verse 10, it says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, I will fulfill my promise to you, and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, and so forth. You will call upon me and come pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me, and you will find me. Um, here, there's definitely an application where God is speaking in the near future, right? Um, Seventy years, a, a generation or two, hence, uh, from the people that are receiving this message. Okay, so in the future, to be sure, but but somewhat in the near future um, by comparison. When you get down um, to this verse where it says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart, your whole heart, you start to see this shift from this kind of corporate relationship between God and his people as a group with the priests being the intermediaries now you get this little bit of a language that there's a shift between God and the individual right you'll find me when you seek me with your whole heart we're going to see some, some shifting to this new covenant situation in chapter 30 In verse 8, it says, It shall come to pass in that day, I will break his yoke from off your neck, and so forth. In verse 9, But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Who's this David their king, whom I will raise up for them? There, David is many years in the rearview mirror, right? Who's this David? So now we have additional shifting from um, a lesser king to this some greater future David, some some future king. A lot of shifting going on from near future, now we're more distant future, right? From the corporate relationship to this individual relationship to uh, a lesser, very flawed king to uh, a greater king that has yet to be raised up. Chapter 31, verse 3. 
second part, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you. So this shift from most of Jeremiah has talked about Judah's unfaithfulness to God, and now God's starting to highlight his faithfulness to them. And so there's a lot of transitional stuff happening across these chapters, and it comes to the the pinnacle in verse 31 of chapter 31. And, and I know we went over this some last week. We're going to go back over it. Verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, this unified nation, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out, out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So again, we see this transition from um, the old law, the Mosaic law, um, written on tablets of stone to this new law written on your hearts. And again, um, when the Ten Commandments came down, it's not like Moses could say, hey, I'm going to email everybody a copy of this, right? There was one set given by God, and so there's word of mouth, and it's pretty clear. It's God and the people, and now it's going to be very personalized. This, this new law, this new covenant can actually be within the individual's heart. Uh, that's the principle. To look at covenant concepts, um, if you have ever walked in almost any establishment, uh, almost any, um, or joined any organization, or uh, visited any website or in, ever installed an app on your smartphone, um, you will encounter rules, right? Um, you know, um, in the old westerns, they would have, even in the bar, would have the rules, you know. Uh, you know, <laughs> no guns or whatever. Um, there are there are rules, right? Um, no shoes, no shirt, no servants, right? I mean, that's they may be very simple rules, but every place kind of sets the rules. Um, in technology terms, it's always the TOS, right? This is the thousands of words you scroll through, not reading, when you say I accept in order that you can install, you know, Angry Birds or whatever on your phone. Um, terms of service, right? And, you know, unbeknownst to you, you've given them the right to track your location and all that sort of stuff, but that's another story. Um, so there's these terms of service. So this covenant it describes this relationship, and I, I pulled out um, Wayne Grudem's uh, definition of covenant, and actually, I'm not sure he intended this to be the definition of a covenant, but it was a subtitle across this huge section in his systematic theology, which we have later in there somewhere. Um, and I thought it was a good definition. He, the question was, what principles govern the way God relates to us? And then a more official definition, 
A covenant would be an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. Unchangeable, divinely imposed, a legal agreement between God and man. Now, that doesn't necessarily imply that there's equal, you know, power or status or whatever, but that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. The very first covenant that people who talk about covenants a lot uh, focus on is what they call either the covenant creation or sometimes called the covenant of works. And this is where God, when he meets Adam and Eve, establishes some ground rules, right? By the way, here's this tree. You can eat from any of these other trees, but you're not to eat of this tree. Because you eat of this tree, you're going to die, right? Those were the rules of the garden. This was a covenant of works. Adam, you know, had choices to make, and there were consequences to his choices. They also talk, theologians, talk about the covenant of redemption. This is one that was new to me. Uh, does anybody know what the general gist of the covenant of redemption is? This is a covenant that is arrived at by, you might say, by deduction. We have all of revealed scripture. And in various places throughout the Bible, we are given glimpses of what happened before there was any of this. The covenant of redemption is used to describe the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit when, as a triune God, had an agreement about how they were going to handle this future sin of man, where it was agreed that Jesus would come to earth and be the sacrifice for us and usher in redemption, that the Holy Spirit would give us power and all these things, and that's the covenant of redemption. This agreement between the persons of the Trinity uh, about how they were going to handle things amongst themselves, um, obviously still one God, but um, on our behalf. And so uh, it was an interesting concept. Um, I've already told you a little more than I know, um, but uh, it's nicely described in uh, some materials I have, and if you want to dig into it further, let me know. But where we are now, they would say, is we're not in a covenant of works anymore. We're now in a covenant of grace. And looking at covenant theology um, is one way of looking at how God deals with his people, okay? Many of you may have been exposed to another 
I think, very helpful view of how God looks at his, uh, deals with his people, and this would be dispensational theology, right? That, that there are, have been different ways that God has dealt and will deal with his people throughout um, in various dispensations and the unfolding. I think these are, in some ways, two different ways of looking at similar at the same truth, really. Um, but uh, we're going to look, because we're talking about covenants, we're going to look at it from the covenant angle. And um, I think there's, I think there's um, encouragement to be gained from both ways of looking at it. Um, so this is not to say one is superior to the other. All right, covenant of grace. Um, they would say the covenant of grace was instituted um, with the Abrahamic covenant. Um, and uh, God's covenant to Abraham. Um, and, uh, and the promises that were given. And we won't go over all of those. Um, they would say that the new covenant... Um, that let me clarify that the Abrahamic covenant the Mosaic covenant the new covenant that we're talking about now all of those would come under this category of being part of the covenant of grace okay um, when we see in Jeremiah this distinction between the new covenant and this inferior covenant they would be careful to point out that the covenant that is specifically being usurped here is the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of the law. They would say it doesn't necessarily negate those initial promises that were given to Abraham. So there were people who, um, even though they were perhaps under the Mosaic covenant, and it was a covenant of, you know, of... Um, it was the law, of course, um, might still receive some of the benefits given to the, um, uh, those under the Abrahamic covenant um, that might supersede those in the Mosaic covenant. That's confusing, but there you go. So let's talk about the new covenant. Why is it better? Uh, so we're going to look at the rest of this. If you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 8. In one of the lengthier quotes of the Old Testament in the New Testament, um, the writer of Hebrews felt it appropriate to spend some time exactly where we are, Jeremiah 31, 31. And so we'll just pick up a little bit in verse 1 of Hebrews 8. Now, the point of what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. We know that all of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, has been designed to show that Jesus is the ultimate high priest for us. And the system that came into being with his sacrifice is way better than anything that 
had been in place with Moses, right? So that's the gist of it. So look down to verse 7. It says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now, when he says first covenant, um, he's referring to the Mosaic covenant, even though we know that wasn't the first covenant in the Bible, right? There was covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Noah, we talked about the covenant of Adam. But he's comparing these two specifically. And then he quotes, For he finds fault with them when he says... Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, and so forth. And, and there's a quote of Jeremiah 31 through 34 there. Verse 13 of Hebrews 8. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So to those who had been raised in the Jewish tradition, he is giving them not just um, a view of how inferior where they have been living has, is or has been, but he's also showing them how much better this new system is and why it is. Um, so look at the benefits, though. In chapter 9 verse 26 of Hebrews it says that Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice himself the original Mosaic covenant uh, covered a person's sin made things right so to speak uh, relationally but it did not atone for sin Jesus gave us that full atonement for our sin. This new covenant, and you can look in Hebrews 1 for this, um, gives us the fullest view of who God is. Jesus, as the mediator for this new covenant, uh, tells us the best example of who God is. Uh, if we doubt that God is good, we can look at Jesus. If we doubt that God is faithful, we can look at what Jesus did. If we doubt that God understands where we are, we can look at Jesus. You know, He is this ultimate new covenant where things get really personal, really individual. That's one of the advantages of the new covenant. Acts 1.8 talks about the work of the Spirit that was ushered in as part of this new covenant. Um, in fact, if you look at 2 Corinthians, there's a description that the power that we have through the Holy Spirit because of this new covenant is greater than the power and the Shekinah glory that Moses had when he received those original Ten Commandments and so that nobody could even look at him, right? Remember he had the veil so nobody could look at him and of course he kept the veil on a little longer than he should have, but... Um, but the power that we have through the Holy Spirit is even greater than what Moses had because of this new covenant. Next, I've alluded to it before, the old covenant was very external. It was very rules-based. It was um, all about trying to constrain yourself. 
but the whole point of the law was mostly to show how much you really needed a savior to kind of show how there was something better coming and and here we have this new covenant which is a heart change covenant right where our heart isn't of stone we get a new heart and then finally this is the eternal covenant right hebrews talks all about that all of this stuff that was going on is basically just a shadow play of the real things that are going on in heaven um this is you might say it's a new covenant uh as far as we know it's probably going to be the last covenant because uh there's a permanence here there's an eternality with this um so the benefits that we have of this new covenant are just huge and far-reaching and encouraging and um, faith grounding that that all of the Bible is basically there to unfold for us this covenant of grace for us um, so for what it's worth that's where we are um, God's big on covenants in case you haven't noticed um, thankfully God has been very gracious to this group of people that we call covenant um, for which I'm also grateful um, any quick questions? All right. If you're a little confused, then I probably got close. Uh, if you're a lot confused, then I've, I've messed up. But, um, but some of this is a little bit confusing because I must admit this is a little different territory than I'm used to dabbling in. But I think it's helpful to draw from, from the, the, the full amount of teaching that we have. Um, this uh, commentary um, that we have um, you know Pastor Bobby distributed those for a reason um, and and uh, that's because there's some really good truth uh, in there so um, so it's 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 important it really is uh, so if we call ourselves a New Testament church or New Covenant church uh, we should at least have some idea of why we call ourselves that all right let's pray Father, we thank you that we have been recipients of this grace that you have laid out for us in the form of covenant. We thank you that you provide the impetus and the power for us to be part of that. And we thank you for all the benefits that we receive from being held within that covenant. We thank you that you are a God who is unchanging, who is uh, everlastingly un. Uh, and unchangingly faithful to us. And uh, we thank you for Jesus through whom we can partake. Amen. Thanks, everybody.